Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Julian Outlier. BTIG Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. I'm not going to bury the lead here, Julian. Try not to do that on a daily basis, but I'm definitely not going to do it today. Two rate cuts in 2019. What are yeah. you guys up to at BTIG? Yeah, no, well, look, uh, first of all, we're, we're historians. And the Fed cuts rates after hiking cycles. Uh, generally, they start within five to six months after the last hike. Um, and so, so the one time they didn't was 2007. But it's more than that. The Fed is very cognizant of the message of the yield curve. We're not believers in, in, in the uh, yield curve inversion. We, we strictly adhere to twos, tens, but the rest of the market does look at it. Uh, so the psychology of recession has started to form. We saw that in, in the plunge in yields. But more importantly, the Fed wants inflation. The Fed is, is very focused on stoking yeah, the inflation. Yeah, I want inflation too. Come on. There's technological change, starting with Uber. John's, I, I said on TV today, John, did you really try to get 30,000 shares of Uber before? Are you getting fired up about the Uber IPO? I'm, I'm like pumped on Uber. Can, can I just editorialize here, folks, and say worldwide, after doing this show for 40 years, John, you've been a saint about this. The IPO giddiness is just ridiculous well the reporting from bloomberg <clears throat> suggesting that we could get a filing for that ipo as soon as tomorrow like a and, ramco like and, where and everybody maybe, goes mental and maybe a listing as soon as may for uber so the yeah. ipos are stacking up and you know what some people will be saying julian this is it the c-suite as some of these private companies see this as the final opportunity the window is closing let's go public what do you say back to that uh well it, it, there's no question that you know when you think about the activity of the last several weeks there's been some major, major deals, major ones coming, and, and you could say that. Uh, our point of view is that what you've really seen is a lot of that risk has occurred through the private investment markets over the last, call it, dozen years or so. Um, and, and in actuality, when you think about valuations, we're not to that froth point yet. So let's dig into the rate cut call and why you still think stocks can go higher. That's hard to reconcile for so many people. If you have the environment that is fertile for a rate cut, that is typically not the environment that risk assets perform well in. Why do you, at the same time as predicting forecasting two rate cuts this year, simultaneously forecast a higher equity market? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be that sort of seeing recession in the, in the whites of the market's eyes. If you look at it uh, in, in a time where we think is, there are similarities, uh, 1995, uh, the Fed cut five months after the last uh, hike in, uh, in early 95, just because inflation uh, and growth dipped briefly. We are in the midst of a soft patch. We're not necessarily yeah. in the midst of a, of a recession of any sort, but the Fed wants to also give the rest of central banks uh, flexibility, and that yeah. means rate cutting. Julian, the charm of your research notes is the first two pages are in English, and then the rest of it is all this derivative mumbo-jumbo, which basically <laughs> centers around what's the bet of the market. What's the bet of the market right now? Like, what actually are hedge funds doing? What's the long-only buy side doing? What are we doing, actually doing and not talking about? 
Well, the bet in the market is that the equities are going higher. But interestingly enough, that has been a very grudging bet over the last several months. And, and in fact... Without vol, without gamma, there's no pop to it. Exactly, exactly. And, and our, our concern in the very yeah. near term is that this vol selling has gotten a bit too carried away. Well, like February of a year ago carried away? Uh, well, so there are actually two examples. Yeah. There was late 2017 when vol sellers were so extreme that they actually ran to the upside, right. but also like right. same as la last year where you had 20% right. on the downside. A move is coming. John Gamma, G-A-M-M-A. Gamma. Are we doing the Greeks today? We're doing the Greeks today. It's Greek Wednesday. <laughs> are you looking for a short-term pop in vol, but over the long-term risk assets perform well. Just walk me through the thinking here over what time horizon, Julia? That, that's exactly right. So, so, and again, this short-term pop in vol, particularly if you get good news, um, you know, market satisfaction with the Brexit extension, uh, the, the potential for some sort of Chinese deal to materialize, um, you know, that is where volatility could actually pop on the upside. Okay, we need to talk about that. That's a catalyst. Good news is a catalyst for higher volatility. Walk me through it. So if you go back, the, the way to think about this is sort of the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, and Tom alluded to it uh, with February. Essentially, you got into a performance chase, and there are a lot of people that are behind their benchmarks, yep. came into the year underinvested, remain somewhat underinvested, and that kind of psychology, that chase, particularly if the Fed continues to indicate that it's got the markets back, uh, causes volatility to expand do, on the upside. Do you know, Julian, it's, it's amazing how your channel is. That's what John and I do every day. We do a performance chase every day. <laughs> Can we talk about a performance just briefly that's going to take place on Capitol Hill a little bit later? Speaking of volatility, the house versus Wall Street. That's what it feels like. That's what it's teed up for with Jamie Dimon, David Solomon, Brian Moynihan, Michael Corbett, James Corman, all going up against the House Financial Services Committee. What does that bring a little bit later other than theatre? What are you looking for from that, Julian? Well, uh, being overweight financials, it always concerns us when you've got executives testifying on Capitol Hill. And it's one of the reasons that we're neutral rated on technology, because we continue to see tech, uh, technology executives in front of Capitol Hill. Uh, essentially, what they're going to do is try and convince legislators that the system is far better off and yeah. that they are really, you know, socially conscious in, in this new age. There's important phrases that you see, say, the late 90s into 2001, 2006 over to 2007. Julian, yesterday... On Bloomberg Surveillance, we heard one of those phrases of the era, the debt hamster wheel. Are we on the debt hamster wheel now where we're going to be like 2006 worrying about every 10 basis points? Uh, with a yield below 250 in the 10-year, we are going to worry about it every 10 basis points, which goes back to our mm -hmm. call for rate cuts because we actually think that if you cut rates, you can potentially stimulate inflation expectations increasing the yield at the I, long just, end. This is just, you know, the guy goes to work for Rich Greenfield and he becomes a radical. <laughs> it is great to have Julian He's with a us. radical. Got to keep up with Rich. I feel tough, like once you, once you leave the Swiss banks, you become unleashed a little bit. <laughs> it's true. Uh, that is, there's, there's a lot going on. We, hey, we need Julian, to thank you. that phrase. Julian Emanuel, BTIG Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist.
Shab Jelen is with us with Credit Suisse. And I guess, Shab, where I want to go is Mr. Draghi's going to do everything not to move the euro. And yet you've got to decide if there's alpha or pop or gain either way in the euro. Is the euro movable over the next six months? Well, the market has sold implied volatility in the euro uh, in massive size. So the market certainly thinks that there aren't many reasons for a large euro move. I think in terms of today, uh, the biggest surprise would be if, as part of the Q&A, um, ECB Chief Draghi decides to address head-on this issue or the stories in the market around the possibility of tiered rates in the future. I think if there's a substantial discussion around that topic, uh, then I think the euro could move and it would probably be to the downside. Let's talk about the move to the downside and how difficult that would be. Euro dollar has really struggled to break 112, Shahab, and we've thrown a lot at it. What is it going to take to get the euro to break that level? I think it's going to have to be something like like what I just described, some, something along the lines of a conversation that raises the possibility of new innovations uh, in monetary policy designed to address more specifically what we can see, which is very low inflation, uh, very falling inflation expectations, uh, and a high likelihood of the ECB missing its targets for inflation in the future. Uh, Till now, Draghi has maintained that ultimately the economy will recover and that inflation expectations and inflation itself will move up again. So anything that suggests that there's a greater risk that that won't happen, uh, we, we would need to see that before the euro can conclusively break down through those levels. And John Farrell, this is critical because Shahab's in the trenches on this, of this massive, as you call it, binary call, John, that's coming up on what central banks do. What is the ECB's next move? I mean, President Draghi teased the prospect that we could have a tiered deposit rate at the ECB or they would do something to offset the pain of negative interest rates for financial and the financial sector, Shahab. It doesn't seem to me that that's on the horizon in terms of happening anytime soon. No, that's right. And I think that's the reason why, uh, as we discussed, volatility in the euro and implied volatility is so low and why markets are basically betting on the current ranges holding. Um, it would be a surprise, if, to, frankly, if today he decides to make a big issue of these, of these themes. But the thing is, it's still difficult to completely uh, give a zero right. probability to this because ultimately it's still the case that the economy is shaky uh, yeah. and certainly inflation data are very okay. weak so that you can't really hide from that and uh, that's why we should stay alive to this risk. Dumb question of the day which we just take for granted but I think for a lot of our audience it's not a dumb question. Shahab, can the ECB cut rates? It's still technically possible. Um, there are central banks for example the Swiss National Bank that have even lower rates uh, than the ECB's current rates. Uh, there's a debate about how useful that would be, um, particularly yeah. for bank profitability and, and therefore uh, credit creation, um, which comes from banks ultimately in the euro area. So, uh, but, it's te- but it's technically possible. And again, the, the issue is what does the ECB do uh, if we go into another major slowdown with another big fall in, in inflation expectations when its tool set is as limited as, as it is, as long as the market doesn't perceive there to be uh, a wide range of other options. Uh, it will still keep open, uh, keep an open mind around the possibility of more negative rates, which, again, you know, I think 
tells us that maybe the problem lies elsewhere. In our view, the, the, if there's going to be a solution, it probably will need a fiscal component. Um, oh, we probably need the countries that have room for fiscal expansion, like Germany, yeah. to, to play a role in that. But that doesn't seem to be uh, on the menu. And John, wasn't it 10 days ago that Chair Yellen in Asia said exactly what we heard Mr. Yellen say? I think so many people have yeah. made this point, and for whatever reason, Europe just doesn't want to explore the policy option, Shahab, and I just yeah. don't know when that changes. When does the penny finally drop that you need a counter-cyclical fiscal policy in Europe? I think the difficulty there is lies not so much in the fact that it's not been discussed sufficiently, clearly it has, it's just that philosophically, um, obviously the Germans seem disinclined to go that way, uh, but also maybe they want to see more signs of reforms uh, that they approve of in the other countries, uh, big countries like France, for example. Um, so there's a quid pro quo of sorts uh, playing out here. The question is whether the European economy uh, can sustain itself long enough for this to really work itself out. Um, again, this, this plays into the, the view of some who believe you need crises to force the issue. Uh, and in the absence of those, nothing much happens, uh, which is why so many investors tend to have a structural bearish euro view. Well, let's talk about that structural bearish euro view and talk about the cycle as well. At the moment, your view is a different degree of bad. It's weak. We'll all agree that it's weak in Europe. But to what degree, Shahab? Because manufacturing is very much weak in a recession, pretty much. Services is okay. The hard data is still coming out okay. The soft data looks terrible. How do you think Draghi actually analyzes the Eurozone economy today with all of those different That's things going question. on? It's not that clear. It's really not clear uh, because th there are other problems too. Uh, for example, we don't know whether the US uh, and President Trump will push on and uh, force the issue around auto tariffs, uh, which obviously if the US were to impose auto tariffs on Europe, would be a new economic shock uh, and something that isn't currently, it's been talked about, but I wouldn't say is necessarily in the price at this point in time for the euro uh, or maybe even Draghi's assessments of the future. So I think it's very difficult because of the changing nature of global trade relationships um, and especially for the euro area being a net exporting region, uh, largely due to Germany, this is a key factor. Uh, I think in terms of current data, as you suggest, you do have the split between the services sector and a reasonable employment outlook by European standards uh, on the one hand, and yet obviously this terrible manufacturing story on the other. Um, but I think ultimately you know, what I'm looking at there to, to solve that dilemma is inflation expectations. And, and if you look at some of the ECB's own favored measures, for example, the five-year, five-year uh, inflation swap rate, uh, it, they've been falling. These inflation expectations are going lower uh, and haven't bounced too much yet either, even with positive news like China's uh, upside PMI surprises for March. So I think that as long as that's the case, we should wow. lean on the side of uh, the ECB having to be to, remaining under pressure to come up with new ideas. Shab Jalen is with us with Credit Suisse. Thank you so much. Right now, Julia Coronado on a weaker euro. I mean, the euro, Julia, just to be direct, really floats off of every word that Mr. Draghi says. What is yeah. the significance right now of this weaker euro? I mean, nobody really expected. The market wasn't really looking for Draghi to deliver a lot today, and he didn't. 
uh, and he's sort of dancing between the raindrops in his comments, sort of indicating that they're studying what they can do and that they're willing to do more, but also trying to stick to that optimistic baseline. But uh, so there's a little bit maybe of disappointment that he didn't deliver anything or maybe that he sounds still a little too um, sanguine and about the outlook and less willing to do what needs to be done. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's really not a big reaction. I think we're still going to be in wait and see mode after this meeting uh, right. see what, what the data do and what the ECB comes up with. One question went to what we spoke about earlier on Bloomberg Surveillance. This idea of looking out five years and then five years forward from there. So right. when, when the pros talk about a five-year, five-year forward, am I right, Julia, that that's a 10-year guesstimate of inflation? Yes, that's basically what the market is thinking is trend inflation. And there we've seen a real deterioration in market uh, expectations for European inflation and I guess that's where probably some of the disappointment comes because Draghi is well, downplaying that deterioration, saying it's just, it's just risk premium, which is what central bankers say when they want to sort of dismiss it and put it okay. aside. Okay. Does the market have a good track record of getting 10-year-out anything right, let alone inflation? <laughs> we can't even forecast inflation in the next six months, let alone yeah. the next five to yeah. ten years. So I don't think anybody's got a good well, track record on that. Julia, we'd go an hour long with you, but we've got festivities in Washington. We're going to run to Paul Sweeney and I are going to begin to frame out a bank conference. We thank Dr. Coronado for really good perspective this morning across all of Bloomberg surveillance on television and radio. We are beyond honored, Paul Sweeney and myself, to have a gentleman who is the only gentleman I would like to talk to on this bridge from 2008-09 to where we are now with bankers defending. Citigroup at ugliest, negative $8 billion operating income, then positive $14 billion bailout operating income, up now, Mike Mayo, to $23 billion of operating income. Do these bankers come before Maxine Waters minting money? Look, it's night and day versus before the financial crisis or during the financial crisis. And what you've seen so far, so far we've had four CEOs testify, and there's a contrast between three of those and one other. And so Bank America, they said they recognized the damage caused by the company. Morgan Stanley, the CEO, said if not for the support of taxpayers, yeah, the firm yeah, might not yeah. have survived. And Citigroup CEO said it was a searing Experience. And, and Moynihan went right after Ken Lewis secondarily here <laughs> talking about Countrywide. Said it's not my fault, it's my predecessor that fought this firm. That was one of the worst acquisitions. There's a stridency to tone that the three of us, we've all, the, the combined three of us folks in the studio have been in 42,312 conference calls. <laughs> this isn't a normal conference call, is it? No, this is pretty unique. But in terms of being night and day, there's one statistic that really sums up the strength of the banking industry, the fixed income market. There's a trillion dollars of bank bonds out there, and the spread of those bank bonds over the last decade have declined from 700 basis points down to 100 basis points. So if somebody says the banking industry is at big risk today, what we would say back to them is we have $1 trillion of bank bonds that disagree. That's right. So, Mike, what would be a success for these bankers coming in front of the Democratic House? They haven't had to do it since the financial crisis. This could get ugly. It's starting out pretty calm here. What would you define a successful day for these bank CEOs? 
a successful day for the seven bank CEOs that are testifying is that there's no headlines, there's not many articles by the time we get to the weekend. So certainly there'll be a lot of press on this today and tomorrow, but make no mistakes. So it's one you know, misspoken word or one yep. bad answer. Uh, that could be really damaging where to do you his think, reputation. Where, where do you think they might be most exposed? Is it diversity in hiring? Is it lending? Is it compensation? Where do you think they're most exposed? Well, I think compensation is an issue, not when banks perform well, but when they don't perform well, because that gives a perception of a system that's not fair. And so we published a report about the uh, State Street CEO over the last nine years made $115 million, even when their primary target got worse, not better. This and is so, Mr. O'Hanley that's speaking this, uh, right no, now. No, it's his predecessor. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, his predecessor. Excuse me. So, you know, this, but this is the realm, this should be the realm of shareholders. So, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. Washington, right. D.C. loves one. So if shareholders don't step <clears throat> in and right. control compensation, then it's an invitation for Congress to say something about it. Okay, we got in a couple, a number of minutes before this. We're going to go back to David Solomon of Goldman Sachs here when he steps in. But Michael Mayo, this is critical. And this goes back to you. You know, you, you were Jackson. It was a Bank of the United States when you began securities analysis, right? <laughs> I mean, it's always a tension of Washington and the mean capitalist New York City bank. That just goes back to, to J.P. Moore. Yeah, it goes, goes back, back to, to Jefferson. Jefferson. I would suggest as well. That's never going to change. So what is Mr. Corbett through Mr. Solomon alphabetically? What's their best outcome today knowing it's never going to change? Well, you know, I think Jamie Dimon's, uh, you know, CEO in the annual report just came out last week, sums it up. He goes, sometimes the job of a banker is to not be liked because you need to say no sometimes. And you know what, when uh, Congress people say, you know, make more loans. Well, lending is an output, an outcome, right. not a decision. You can make as many loans as you want. And that got us into the subprime crisis for sure. So I think it's just a matter of, it's a natural, sometimes a healthy tension. You don't want banks lending too much because then you do indeed have right. a financial crisis. I was surprised, Paul, you didn't mention the number of construction workers that are going to tear down and rebuild the palace <laughs> on, Park, on Avenue. Park Avenue. Exactly. I mean, right. I looked it up, the Ocean Bay Apartments or whatever in Rockaway Beach, and there it is on Google is... is, yep. is is one of the bankers mentioned that as well. Paul, please. So, Michael, do you think that, I mean, again, post-financial crisis, a big layer of regulatory uh, uh, oversight came to the global banking industry, the U.S. banking industry. Do you feel like we're at a point now where they can start pushing back and saying, listen, we, the system's much safer now. We can pull back some of those regulations off of the cities and the J.P. Morgans, or do you think the CEOs don't even want to go there? Well, I, don't, I think you're, the way you phrased it, pushing back, I don't like that phrase. Okay. I think okay. preserve the safety and soundness of the banking industry. It's stronger than it's been in decades. Having said that, you know, improve the efficiency of regulation, improve the transparency of regulation, improve the effectiveness of regulation. Regulators did a great job. Regulators should take a victory lap, but now it's time for a look back and say, hey, right. can we have this effectiveness of regulation better? How do the new mergers fold into this BB&T and whatever? I mean, we're beginning to see what you've predicted for years, and you know, those of your ilk in securities analysis, they're all gonna fold up, they're gonna roll up, not Canada-like, but the big banks are going to get bigger in America just because they got the technolo technological edge, don't they? Well, here in the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis, and the uh, immediate catalyst for banks getting bigger was banks, you know, pretty much almost failing. And then banks got much bigger before they were really equipped for that size. In the last couple of years, you're seeing now that 
Goliath is winning. The largest banks have become more efficient and generating more deposits because of the scale of technology. So if you, right. you, if you can't beat them, join them. And so you had the BB&T and, and SunTrust merger. The first reason they gave was, gave was to get better economies from technology. Soldier with us today. Michael Mayo with us with Wells Fargo. They are not in attendance uh, today. Of course, we wouldn't want Mr. Mayo to comment on uh, Wells Fargo executive policies and such. We're listening to bankers of eight banks, including State Street and uh, Bank of New York Mellon as well. We await Mr. Solomon of Goldman Sachs. Paul Sweeney, try to squeeze in one more question to the extinguished mail. Exactly. And and Michael's uh, seen this come and go many cycles through the banking sector. Is there a risk now that we have a more progressive part of the Democratic Party in the House now? Does that increase the risk for more regulation on the banks, not less? Well, the importance of the hearings today by the seven CEOs is, you know, sound bites can turn into policy ideas, can turn into presidential agendas, can turn into legislation, which turns into regulation. So this might be a preview of what's to come during next year's presidential election and beyond. Dumb question. Is President Trump pro-Big Bank? You know, that was a very tribal question you just asked. You know, <laughs> no, no, but I'm serious. Like, it's, it's almost tribal now. You're either for big banks or you're against big banks. And can we just be pragmatic? Whatever's best for the economic system is what we should support. Okay, Mike Mayo with us with Wells Fargo. We're honored to have him with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.